We know spirit-filled leadership is important because Jesus is the one who established it. Join me now for a three-part series on what happens after Pentecost and how that helps us become a leader. Welcome to the Spirit-Filled Leadership Podcast. I'm Pete Brack. As the intro implied, didn't imply, it directly said, we are embarking on a three-part series looking at the difference in the apostles before to after Pentecost. Because if we're talking about Spirit-Filled Leadership, the moment where Spirit-Filled realities take place in our lives and in the history of the church begins in a particular way on Pentecost. So it makes a lot of sense to say, okay, what do we see happen on Pentecost? And what change did that make in the men and women who were in that upper room? And then what lessons can we take from it as our own journey of spirit-filled leadership begins? It's worth noting that all of us who have been baptized and confirmed have received the Holy Spirit. So as the church actually teaches, confirmation is supposed to be a moment of personal Pentecost in the life of the believer. So maybe this is an episode for another time, but we should probably do a little bit of an analysis of has Pentecost happened in my life. The reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has happened if you've been baptized and confirmed. But whether or not you're living in and through that experience of what that should generate in you is a worthy discussion. But we're going to do three episodes in a row on three changes we see in the apostles after Pentecost. Three changes, three episodes, and they're all going to be a little shorter so that you actually listen to the whole thing so that we can build upon each other. And just so happens that all three changes um, begin with the, the letter C. I don't know why, other than I think there's some anointing in alliteration. So let's let's frame the situation first. First, we have these um, men and women, but let's focus on the apostles in a particular way. These these guys had the best men's group in the history of men's group, right? They spent three years being discipled by Jesus himself. They walked with him. They ate with him. They 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 did everything that he did. I mean, they watched him. They observed him. He formed them. He trained them. He explained things to them. And I mean, they were his disciples. They were learning to become him. That's another way to think about discipleship, right? Is living as Jesus would live if he were you. Well, you you have to understand how Jesus lives in order to live in a similar way in your own time, in your own space, with your own personality, with your own gifting. And so here we have these men who are are walking with Jesus. They're seeing him do all these miracles. They're They're being formed by him. They're being fed by him. And then, of course, like the... The crucifixion happens, which is pretty dramatic, and they all scatter, and they all flee, and they all kind of freak out. And then they're back, and he brings them back together again, and he rises from the dead, and he's walking through walls, and he's feeding them again, and they have to have been just like totally thrilled about it, right? Here we go. He's our, our, our boss is back. Our guy is back. Let's go, right? And then, um, you know, fast forward a little bit. He gives them the Great Commission. Go, therefore, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing, blah, 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 blah. You know the story. He tells them that he'll be with them always. But then he says these really important kind of final instruction. He says, wait. Wait in the city until you receive power from on high, and then you'll be my witnesses. Because Jesus understood that the power necessary to fulfill the mission he had commissioned them into, the equipment, if you will, for the mission, needed to come from a supernatural source. And Jesus understood and had already revealed that it was better for him to go so that he could send the Spirit, so that he could dwell in us in a new way, so that the body of Christ could come alive with the same Spirit that raised him from the dead. So they've, given, they've, they've gotten the vision 
They know the assignment, but they need the power. They need the power. And Jesus, uh, in his gentleness and in his faithfulness and his love, says, you're going to do this, but wait until you receive power from on high, and then you're going to be my witnesses. Then you'll be my spirit-filled leaders. So they do what they're told, right? They go into the city, and they wait, and they pray. And we don't really know much about what their mental state was like in the upper room. In Acts chapter 2, it doesn't say anything about their emotional state. It just says they were there, gathered in one place, praying, doing what they were told to do because they're good disciples. I'm sure some of them were scared. I'm sure some of them were anxious. I'm sure some of them were excited. I'm sure somebody was taking stock of their resources. You know, do we have any money? No. Do we have any political influence? No. Do we have any churches? No. Do we have any seminaries? I don't know. What's a seminary? No, they don't. They didn't have that, right? They, they barely had anything. They had each other. They had the beginnings of the sacraments, and they had a promise. And the Holy Spirit shows up. A bomb goes off in that room. They receive him with humility, and they flow out of the upper room. And quite literally, the world has never been the same. And they are different. They are very different. So the first thing I want to highlight that is different about them is they have received the power to be courageous. What's different about them? Courage. Courage. It's not that they were completely devoid of courage before, and it's easy to talk about them as if they were just a bunch of scaredy pants, right? And even a lot of homilies I've heard talks about how in Acts chapter 2, uh, they're, they're hiding in the upper room because they're scared. Again, we don't know exactly what their mental state was, in Acts 2. We just know they were waiting and they were praying. But it's reasonable to assume that they were scared. It's reasonable to assume that they were worried. It's reasonable to assume they wondered if they could do it, if they could follow through. I bet some of them wondered if when the chips were down and the threat was real, whether or not they would deny him again or whether they'd be able to be faithful. And there's a courage that is instilled in them that and you know, an interesting thing about courage is courage emerges when it's needed. You're not, you know, you can't, it's not really worth saying like, I'm a courageous person. It's like, okay, that's great. You can say that about yourself. You may feel courageous, but courage is, is an action. Courage is a, is a mental and uh, intestinal fortitude with being willing to do the thing that is necessary because you see its value and you are persevering even if it hurts, even if it's hard, even if it, even if you have to suffer. You know, Joseph Pieper has a definition of courage that I think is really good. He said, courage is the willingness to sustain a wound for a noble cause. The willingness to be wounded for something noble, for something worth it. And what you see in the apostles is all of a sudden the willingness to put it all on the line, to suffer for the name, to risk for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the mission. Here's a good example of this. We have in Acts Chapter 7, the Sanhedrin brings before them, the very men who put Jesus to death, they put bring before them uh, Stephen. And they say, Stephen, knock it off. You haven't been doing what we're telling you to do, but go ahead and defend yourself. And he, for, from a biblical standpoint, defends himself for an awfully long time. And it culminates with this. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Quite honestly, I don't even fully understand what he means by uncircumcised in heart and ears, but that's pretty intense especially to a, a Jewish audience. He's saying you're uncircumcised in your heart and your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You know it's intense because listen to their response. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth against him. My wife and I, we have a five-year-old. His name is Zeke. Uh, he's pretty awesome. 
Uh, a couple years ago, he started to discover that anger was an emotion he could express, right? And he'd say things like, you're mean, dad. And he kind of growl at us and I'm mad. And then every once in a while, he kind of grind his teeth. I'm mad at you, dad. And, you know, when a three-year-old does that, it's pretty cute. When a group of grown men start grinding their teeth at another grown man, that's not cute. That's terrifying. It means they have lost control. It means they are have gone insane because only crazy people grind their teeth. This is what Stephen is looking at. So now we need to listen to Stephen's response. Stephen says, Now Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the moment of greatest potential violence, in the moment where fear should have reigned in his heart, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, is able to look above and beyond the threat to see why it's worth it. He looks past the men who want to harm him and sees Jesus, sees the glory of God, and he says, oh, yes, that's what I want. That's where I'm going. That's courage. He then is faithful. He doesn't deny the Lord. He persists to the end because he says, I know where I'm going. And what you see with the great martyrs of the church over and over again is the courage that comes from the life of the Holy Spirit within them to remind them, to elevate their gaze, to remind them of where they're going, to remind them why it's worth it so that they can be sustained and make the decisions necessary to do what is right, to choose the good. Many of us are not going to be brought before a group of men who lose control and have the power to see us killed by stones. It's probably going to be a pretty rare group who's listening to this podcast that ever has that experience. But as a leader, there are going to be plenty of moments of threat, of violence, of concern, of fear, of insecurity, of uncertainty, of anxiety, things in front of us that we don't know what to deal with, that we could focus on, or filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we let the Holy Spirit elevate our gaze and show us why it's worth it. Show us the pathway through and remind us where we're going, what we're made for. And when that happens, that's courage. And the old adage is always, you know, why are men able to storm a beach to fight a war? Where does that courage come from? Well, it comes from the deep conviction that it's worth it. And most of the time it's for their brothers to, to the next them. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. He unites us around a common vision. He unites us around a common purpose and a common uh, expectation of what is to come and then gives us the power to choose what is right even when it's hard. And as a leader, that is a pivotal thing to bake into your life, to be tenacious about, is I'm going to choose to do what is right even when it hurts, even when it's hard. That's courage. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. This has been the Spirit-Filled Leadership Podcast. I'm Pete Perak. Come back in a couple weeks for part two of what Pentecost changes in the apostles and the disciples and what we should do about it. God bless you. Come take my hand We'll dance on graves Raise the dead